Hello everyone and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore. In the current series, we've been making our way through the book of Deuteronomy, which is Moses' farewell sermon to the people of Israel. Looking across the Jordan to the promised land, Moses instructs the people to keep the law and remain faithful to the Lord so that all may go well with them in the land of Canaan. Moses becomes the community's scapegoat who brings blessing to the community in his death. Having died upon the sacred mountain, Moses secures the community's access into the promised land. We'll see these themes continue today as we read on from chapter 4 verse 1. And now Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live, and go in and take possession of the land of the Lord, the God of your fathers, the land he is giving to you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you, held fast to the Lord your God, are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is wise and understanding. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to them as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Only take care and guard your lives diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children, how on that day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children to do likewise. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven wrapped in the clouds and darkness and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sounds of the words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. Moses instructs the people to diligently keep the law which he has imparted to them. The role of lawgiver is another common stereotype for the communal scapegoat. Through Moses' death, the people received this life-giving law. To emphasize the importance of this law, Moses recalls the recent incident recorded in Numbers chapter 25. In this incident, Israel look around at the people of Moab and are seduced into worshipping their gods. 
In so doing, the people forsake the Lord and yoke themselves to the Baal of Peor. In response, the Lord's anger is kindled and a plague ensues, which ultimately claims the lives of 24,000 Israelites. From a mimetic perspective, this plague represents mimetic rivalry spiraling out of control as the Israelites forsake the worship of the Lord to worship the Baal of Peor. As the cycle of rivalry escalates within the community, a vicious cycle of murderous violence begins, which is attributed to the Lord's wrath, the personification of the primitive sacred. To satisfy the anger of the primitive sacred, Moses executes all the Israelite chieftains and commands the judgments to kill anyone engaged in sacrilege. The Lord's anger is finally assaged and the plague halted when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, kills an Israelite man and his Moabite consort by thrusting a spear through their bellies. By recalling this incident, Moses reminds the people that forsaking the Lord and his commandments to follow other gods may have dire consequences. Standing on the shore of the promised land, Moses urges the people to continue to be faithful to the Lord, lest they suffer the fate of their fellow countrymen who died in that dark incident. Moses argues that the people of Canaan will marvel and praise the law-abiding Israelites because they are so wise and understanding. The words translated as wisdom and understanding in this passage describe the sort of wisdom and knowledge needed to be successful and prosperous in life. It's a type of practical wisdom and prudence which makes someone successful in everything they do. Through this type of wisdom, the people become empowered to call upon the Lord so that he might intervene quickly and decisively on their behalf. From a mimetic perspective, this concept describes the nation's mastery over mimetic rivalry and, by extension, the primitive sacred. Moses recalls the receipt of the Ten Commandments upon Mount Horeb, as the mountain burned with fire and smoke. As we have noted in earlier episodes, fire represents the destructive potential of the primitive sacred which must be deftly managed. By observing all the words recorded in the law given to them by Moses, Israel avoids outbursts of divine violence and wield mimetic violence against their enemies. In a nutshell, the whole purpose of the law is to empower Israel to experience the Lord's peace and blessing by minimizing mimetic rivalry within their community and venting it outwards towards their enemies. For the Deuteronomist, that is the writer of Deuteronomy, the Ten Commandments are central to Israel's prosperity within the land. As some scholars have noted, the laws presented in Deuteronomy expand upon the Ten Commandments, presenting some practical guidance upon how exactly to observe these fundamental communal values. In addition to instructing their children to observe the law, the people must share their experience of the Ten Commandments reception with their children. This concept is particularly interesting from a mimetic perspective, which looks behind the image of the primitive sacred as a burning mountain to reveal the communal execution of Moses. 
the people must teach their children to treat mimetic rivalry and violence as a sacred entity which must be feared and revered. Only by observing the Lord's rules and commandments can the people experience divine blessing in the land of Canaan. Reading on now from verse 15. Therefore watch yourselves carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of a male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of winged birds that fly in the sky the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground and the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven, you will be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. And the Lord was angry with me on your behalf, and he swore that I should not cross over the Jordan, and I will not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving to you as an inheritance. Therefore, I must die in this land. I will not cross over the Jordan so that you might go over and take possession of that good land. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over to the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but you will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Notice this theme continuing of Moses' role as the communal scapegoat in this passage. We are again reminded that the Lord was angry with Moses on the people's behalf. In fact, you may have noticed that my translation of this passage really emphasizes the substitutionary nature of Moses' death. And this is the nature of translation. There's always some form of interpretation that goes into any work of translation. 
many biblical translators downplay this substitutionary element of Moses' death, mainly because it doesn't fit with their theological framework. However, when we read this passage through the lens of mimetic theory, this theme really pops out at us, and I've endeavoured to highlight this theme in my translation of this passage. Becoming caught up in the scapegoat mechanism, the people load their sins upon Moses, who is then purged from the community through death. By these means, the primitive sacred's anger is pacified and Israel's entry into the promised land secured. With this in mind, Moses cautions the people about worshipping graven images, which echoes the second law of the Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. The Lord of Mimetic Rivalry cannot be represented in any shape or form. Moses reminds the people that they saw no form at Mount Horeb, only a burning fire and smoke. The people must worship the Lord alone, and they must resist the temptation to worship the forms they observe in the creation around them. For example, in Exodus chapter 32, we saw Israel fabricate and worship a metallic cow, as if it were the Lord himself. As pastoralists, the cow was a significant symbol for the Israelite people, signifying the wealth, freedom and prosperity they hoped to secure by worshipping this image. Carved images depict the community's most commonly desired objects and become a locus upon which the people may focus their mimetic desire. If we think about polytheistic systems that we know, there's a God for every conceivable desire. By these means, carved images ignite and inflame mimetic desire within the community, which may kindle a rivalry between people who compete with one another over their common desired object. Let's just take a moment to think about the gods of ancient Rome and Greece. If you wanted to go to war and win the war, you could pray to Mars or Ares, who both represented victory and military success. If you wanted a successful harvest in your field, you might pray or sacrifice to Ceres, the god of agriculture. If you want to become rich and successful, perhaps you are a traveling merchant, you would pray to Mercury, the god of finance and trade. Or perhaps you are more fixated upon your love life, so you pray and worship Aphrodites. As you get older and you start to value more your youth, you might then go and serve Athena, the goddess of youthfulness and beauty. And the list goes on, but here's the rub. There is a God for every conceivable desire and passion which might be awakened within humans. As people worship these gods and their representative images, mimetic rivalry and desire is inflamed within the community. These images inspire people's passions and allow them to focus them on a single desired object. As more and more people begin to desire the same object, they inevitably come into conflict with one another 
as they compete for this common desire. Deuteronomy's prohibition against worshipping carved images demonstrates an awareness of mimetic desire's potential for destruction. Instead of inflaming mimetic desire through the worship of carved images, Israel must focus their religious acts upon the formless god of mimetic violence. Now, worshipping the god of mimetic violence might sound quite weird and odd. Why would anyone want to do that? But in actual fact, it works similar to the worship of other ancient deities. Ancient people worshipped the gods of their desire so that they might obtain that very thing which they seek. Think for a moment how ancient people may have worshipped a storm god in the ancient Near East like Baal or in Norse mythology Thor. You need the storm god to send the rain and the storms at the right time so that you get a bountiful harvest for your crops. So you see this god as being able to bless you. But on the other hand, the storm god could bring the storm at the wrong time, a mighty storm which destroys the whole harvest. Ancient people who relied upon farming their own food to survive really relied upon this storm god being favourable to them and giving them rain and storms at the right time and in the right place and in the right quantity and not giving them destructive storms that would ruin their harvest. Israel's worship of the primitive sacred functions in a similar manner. Israel wants to minimize mimetic rivalry within their community to keep themselves safe, while at the same time being able to harness this power and vent it outwards upon their enemies. But if Israel imitate their Canaanite neighbors and worship their gods, divine fire or the primitive sacred will consume the entire community. Verse 24 states that the Lord God, well that is the primitive sacred, the God of mimetic violence, is a jealous God. The word translated jealous in this verse is the Hebrew word kinah, which we've already encountered in earlier episodes. You may recall that kinah describes a type of ruthless religious zealotry which persecutes and kills others. For example, in Numbers chapter 25, Phinehas's kinah is commended because it inspires him to incarnate the primitive sacred violence as he slaughters the community's scapegoat couple. In a similar manner, Israel must zealously vent their mimetic violence upon the Canaanites. In so doing, the Israelites become the manifestation of the primitive sacred. Because the primitive sacred inspires and empowers whoever it wills, it cannot take on any specific form, other than the consuming fire that threatens to destroy everything in its path. You see, mimetic violence cannot be given a form, because it's within us, it's part of the human condition. As soon as we attach a certain familiar form to mimetic rivalry, it becomes something other than us, something external to who we are, which is simply not the case. The carved images worshipped by Israel's neighbours hide and conceal the force of mimetic rivalry which lies behind these primal desires. Interestingly, the zealous, all-consuming god of mimetic violence 
is also described as a merciful God who will hear the community's cries from exile. Verses 27 and 28 state that Israel will be exiled from their land and scattered abroad where they will worship carved images just like the people around them. This passage refers to Israel's exile in Babylon which took place about 587 BC. In exile, the people imitate their Babylonian neighbours and begin to worship the same carved images which will kindle mimetic desire throughout their community. As mimetic desire escalates, the Israelites suffer tribulation which ultimately prompts the community to call upon the Lord to save them. Just as the Lord of mimetic rivalry and violence inspired Israel's exodus from Egypt, so the Lord will now inspire the people's exodus from Babylon. In his mercy, the Lord of mimetic violence will hear the cries of his people and once more deliver them from their affliction. As it turned out, in 539 BC, Cyrus the Great absorbs Babylon into his empire and allows the Israelites to return home to their land in Canaan. Let's read on now from verse 32. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the land, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of fire, as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself, for the midst of another nation, by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them, and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence, by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance, as it is this day. Know therefore today, and lay it upon your heart, that the Lord is God in heaven and on the earth beneath, and there is no other. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all eternity. This passage extols the uniqueness of Israel's God. While other people groups are worshipping images carved into the shapes of their specific desires, Israel is worshipping the creative force behind all these desires, the primitive sacred. This is another reason why you can't attach a specific image to Israel's God. There is only one God, the primitive sacred, who inspires and drives others to worship all these different objects. Israel's worship of this one true guiding force is what sets them apart from the rest of the nations around them 
who worship the objects of their desire rather than mimetic desire itself. Only Israel has observed the zealous burning of the one true God and lived to tell the tale. How did Israel endure the primitive sacred's wrath? They transferred and loaded their sins upon their communal scapegoat Moses, who dies so that the community might live and enjoy a prosperous life in the land of Canaan. According to Deuteronomy, the Israelite community have developed a unique insight into the workings of the primitive sacred and how to effectively manage it. So long as Israel diligently serve and worship the Lord alone, they will enjoy divine blessing and prosperity in the land of Canaan. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.